Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through the Lawyerist Lab and Accelerator. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. I'm Laura Briggs. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 295 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. In today's episode, we're talking with Jeff Wald about the future of jobs. Today's podcast is brought to you by Belay, Case Text, Text Expander, and Back Office Betty's. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. So stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So Stephanie, when this episode airs, we will be just finished with wrapping up our LabCon Fall 2020 event. This is our second virtual event of 2020, courtesy of the pandemic. And I know you worked really hard to make sure that this event wasn't like so many things where you have the potential to be sitting in front of a video camera all day or watching a PowerPoint presentation. I feel like a lot of people are Zoomed out. So I was hoping we could talk a little bit about you know, this time you had much more time to prep to go virtual for LabCon. So I was hoping to talk a little bit about your strategy behind how you set it up this year. Yeah. So I think one of the things I did was what do we normally do in the room together when we're in person? Because one of the things that's probably different about LabCon from most legal conferences, even before we went virtual, is that it's very interactive. We took away speakers, we took away things that, you know, sometimes are boring at conferences, and we said, what's the good stuff? And a lot of times the good stuff was the conversations that happened in the hallways. And so we said, how can we take those cool parts and make that the star of the show? And so you have to understand that, number one, LabCon is just normally very different and how it works is very different. The lawyers who attend, who've never been before, they often email me, hey, where's the agenda? Like, I need to figure out where I'm going and what tracks I'm going to. And I always laugh. I'm like, yep, not going to be like that. And you just kind of trust me. You show up and I take care of you, which I really enjoy doing as a conference planner, being able to serve the community this way. So I think it kind of helps just to frame what does a normal LabCon look like? And then I had the challenge of, okay, how do I create that type of experience with us being on Zoom? And obviously, I would so much rather be in person because it's fun and I like seeing everyone and it's hard to replicate like the late night talks around the bonfire where you just get our walks around the lake where you get to know someone on a different level. And so we were like, how can we do some of those things with our virtual conference? I love that. And I feel like it's so important for everyone to think about it from this perspective. Whenever you're doing team meetings or team retreats or all these things that are a little bit easier when you've got that benefit of being in the same room with people and you're all brainstorming and getting that downtime like you talked about. So being intentional about how you set up or even attend these kinds of events is so important because I know for us, our team has been remote. So being on Zoom, a good portion of some days of the week is not really a new concept to us, but it's really been hard with how many conferences have gone virtual, how many events that you would have previously loved to attend. And now you've got to prepare yourself if they're set up for eight hours of back-to-back sessions with different tracks and you've got to log into different rooms and you just can't interact with people in the same way. So it seems to me like you have to be 
really proactive in how you plan ahead of how am I going to build those things in? Like have that as your core idea of, I want to keep these elements of what people love about LabCon or love about our team retreats. How do we, you know, build that in and make that be something that's really fun? I know when we did our last quarterly leadership team retreat at Lawyerist, when we got back together with everyone and talked about kicking off the new quarter, we did a virtual escape room together. So it was still kind of like that team bonding happened, everyone having a good time, but you have to be proactive about planning that because it's probably a little harder to do it organically, right? Yeah. And probably my biggest challenge was um, last week I shipped off 80 boxes of materials to everyone who's coming and everyone who's participating in any way. And that was insane. I think I bit off a little bit more than I could chew. And so there were a couple of late nights. I'm not going to lie. I was like, oh. So one of the things that every person who participated received a physical box with 11 envelopes inside our packages, all numbered with instructions like, wait, do not open any of this because we are going to have reveals and during the conference, like we, that's one of the things we do at LabCon is we have fun surprises. And we were like, how can we recreate that element of surprise and fun? And so we had physical things that we sent to everyone. And then people got to use them in fun ways and interact with us with the physical things that they got. Another one of the things we did that I think it's easy to share is normally at our live events, we always start the day with some exercise opportunities, right? We usually have a yoga class or a walking group or running group or different people like connect up and want to go do something to, to move their bodies. So we're like, well, that's a little bit harder to do with a virtual conference. But uh, the night before we found out like who wants to walk and who wants to run. So yoga we could do on Zoom. But for the walking pairs, we like legit like just paired people up with one another and they just called each other and they had small groups that went on a walk together in the morning before the event started. And that's kind of, I think, a different way, like, because I was like, how do we recreate that walk around the lake? Like I had a walk around the lake years ago at LabCon with Shannon Montgomery. And I feel like we'll be, you know, friends for life because we really just had a great conversation. And so we just paired people up like that and said, okay, go take a walk in the morning with one another. So many good ideas and they're creative too, but you just have to be, you have to go beyond the default of, okay, this meeting, this event, this conference is virtual. So literally that just means we're going to take all of our presentations and deliver them virtually instead. I think it's so much better when you can have that time and plan ahead to go beyond that and really deliver an amazing experience for your attendees. You know, I think it's just important to, if you're thinking about going to events is really thinking about what can you get out of it and making sure it's going to deliver. Because if all you're going to do is log on and kind of zone out and do work half while you listen and have like, you know, kind of what's the point. And so maybe be a little bit more critical about which events you decide to go to. And then if you go, like go all in and pay attention and shut everything else out and be a good participant, just like you would in a live event. I think you as the participant will just get more out of it. That's a really good point. It's so much harder when you're on your computer and you probably have your email tab open and you can do other things and not being as focused as you would be in person when you're in the room and you've got your notebook out and you're really there to pay attention and absorb and interact with people. So great ideas that you've shared. Now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Trisha Shortino from Belay and then my conversation with Jeff. 
Hey, I'm Trisha Shortino, the CEO of Belay. Love having you back on the podcast. And today we're talking about a hot topic that comes up a lot with our attorneys, especially those who are outsourcing for the first time. And that is how to remotely manage your team and communicate effectively. So I know you have a couple different tips for us on that. What would you say is the foundation to communicating the right way with a remote team member? Yeah. First, I would say um, make sure it's happening. Um, communication is key, especially when you're working remote. It's so essential. And it's important for so many reasons. First, I would say team members need to know what their expectations are. So make sure it is so clear. Also, you want to be able to give great feedback and address blind spots, challenge people to grow, and expand their opportunities Sometimes helping people see themselves is a gift you can give them, like holding up a mirror and saying, this is how you show up. Here's some great feedback. A lot of people don't see themselves and maybe when they show up with gaps. Also, as far as communicating and giving great feedback to your team, you don't, as a leader, want to sanction incompetence. It's something I've learned, and we hear Dave Ramsey talk a lot about in Entree Leadership and that group of people. Um, it sends a message when leaders don't communicate well and hold people accountable to expectations, and it can create gaps in a leader's trust and the team's trust of that leader. And lastly, when we talk about baseline great why for having great communication and giving great feedback, we have to remember people intrinsically want to do the right thing. They want to show up. They want to serve well. They don't intend to disappoint or leave gaps. So it's up to us to remember that and communicate back to them and give them great feedback so we can help them do that exactly the way they want to do it. So it sounds like step one is just being open to the idea that you need to be giving feedback, even if sometimes it's uncomfortable. I'm sure a lot of people don't give feedback the right way, though, or maybe they don't give it often enough. So how do you effectively provide that feedback loop for your employees? Yes. Everyone can be trained to give great feedback, but at the end of the day, if you fear it and you don't do it, you wind up in a bad spot anyway. So the first thing I would say about giving great feedback is come with your emotional intelligence intact. As a leader, we want to be able to separate our emotions from the problems we're solving in business. The second thing I would say is know who you're dealing with. Know your team. We believe in taking all kinds of assessments, whether it's DISC or Enneagram, um, whatever kind of personality or temperament assessments you could to really know your team, because that will determine how you deliver information. Each person will require something different of you as a leader. So understanding how people need to hear you and how you're going to approach feedback is super important. And then the last thing I would say is typically we want to lean into our style. And as a leader, we want to make sure that we're leaning into their style. So for me, I'm kind of a cut to the chase. Just tell me what I messed up. Uh, tell me what I need to do better. And you don't need to put that inside a pretty bow for me. I, I have thick skin and I just want to hear it. But that may not be everybody's preference. Some people may need to receive the information in a softer way or a more empathetic way. So knowing your people helps you deliver it in a way that they can receive it that's comfortable for them. I love that. You can just ask people too. So you know upfront, are you going to be able to deliver feedback in the way that's most effective for them? And I imagine that that means that you need to give the person the feedback as soon as possible after you've noticed the issue or the piece of feedback that you want to give them, because a lot of people are, might wonder, well, why are you waiting weeks or months to tell me something that you obviously knew was a concern, positive or negative, when it happened a while ago? 
Yes. And what I always say is that giving feedback live just in your day-to-day helps you avoid having to have that awkward confrontation, hey, can I talk to you conversation with your team member? So nobody wants to have that conversation where you have to sit somebody down and address issues that have piled up over a month. It's awkward for the leader. Why have you been sitting on this stuff? And it's awkward for the person to receive that um, and hear feedback about something they did maybe a month ago that could have been a micro little tweak they could have done the same day. I'm always encouraging feedback to be in the day-to-day. When you see just something that's a little off or not the way, just address it right then. Like, hey, would you mind next time doing it like this? Then it becomes a non-conversation. If you constantly just tweak in the day-to-day and handle all the little things and give great advice, like next time try this, I like the other color better. If you do it every day, then you wind up never having to have an ugly confrontation feedback loop right there. So that's my first thing I would say about that. The second thing is helping them see that the feedback is positive. It's a gift. It's to help them get better. It's to help fill gaps. It's to help them grow. And the last thing I would say is make sure whatever feedback you're giving them, there's an action plan. Um, You're going to do X, Y, Z to fix it. You're going to have a plan for me by next week. Um, Make sure you're giving them kind of a smart goal, if you will, around the feedback and the correction that you want them to fix. And then last but not least, make sure you inspect what you expect. Go back and follow up on the conversation you had. Don't let it lie and don't let it fall between a crack. Amazing tips. Belay has put together a whole e-guide called How to Remotely Manage Your Team. And just one chapter of that, chapter three, covers communication, but there's a lot more in that resource. You can get that at belaysolutions.com slash lawyerist. Well, hello, I am Jeff Wald. I'm the founder of a company called Work Market. Work Market is enterprise software that enables companies to organize, manage, and pay their freelancers. And I have written a book on the future of work called The End of Jobs. I'm so excited to have you on the show because I love the book. And prior to working here at Lawyerist, I was a freelancer for eight years. So I always love people that talk about these kinds of topics and how the world of work has been changing. So to kick us off, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of your core arguments, the main ideas inside your book? Well, you know, Laura, what I'll start out with is why I wrote it, which is I get very frustrated with people that make predictions or, quite frankly, argue things without evidence. And in the discussion on the future of work, there were a lot of conversations that existed outside of what I believe to be the three main bodies of evidence, one being what has happened in the past? How have companies and workers come together in times of technological disruption, political disruption, social upheaval, and things like that. We have many, many examples to go off of. Second, what does the data tell us? The data, obviously, of historic patterns and trends, certainly, but the data of the world of work today. And then three, how do companies really engage workers? Because there's this general thought that, oh, companies are just going to go to the cheapest option, and it's just not the case. So those three buckets of evidence are things that we try very hard in the book to accentuate, to really say, if you want to make a prediction on the future of work, let's look at these three things, the history of work, the data patterns in work, how companies actually engage workers, 
And let's use those to make a thoughtful prediction on the future of work. And that, to me, is what the book is about. I love that. And you start off the book with this big claim that workers and companies and society have had to renegotiate the social contract. Can you explain what you mean by saying that? Sure. Well, you know, we have a lot of people right now very concerned about the world of work because of robots and AI. That, oh my gosh, all the jobs are going to go. And it echoes the same doomsday predictions that happened every time that there is a huge technological step function in the way we work. And each time we ended up with ever more jobs at an ever higher standard of living with people working ever fewer hours. And so it struck me, well, what's different about it this time? And the answer is not much. There are some things that are different, but for the most part, we are dealing with that same dynamic of a huge technological step function like we saw in the advent of mechanization or electrification or computerization, what are traditionally known as the three industrial revolutions. We are seeing that same kind of thing now with robots and AI. And it's important to understand how companies, workers, and society adjusted to those last three step functions as we are in the early stages of this fourth step function. And so that's really what you see as the coming, you know, next upheaval with the mechanization, electrification, and computerization. Those have already happened and kind of created shockwaves and ripple effects throughout the economy and society. And so can you talk a little bit about why you think on-demand labor is the core of what's already happening, but certainly what's coming in the workforce? Well, you know, I do call the book The End of Jobs, Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. And it's interesting, when I founded Work Market, there was this general idea in the world of work that 50% of the workforce would be on-demand in 10 years. Now, I founded the company 10 years ago, and so we have the benefit now of being 10 years later, and no, no, that didn't happen. And it was never going to happen. It was one of those predictions that would annoy me because it wasn't based on evidence. So when we think about on-demand workers, though, the reality is, to use the Uber driver as the ultimate example of an on-demand worker, all the tensions that that Uber driver faces, total personal responsibility, task-based labor, work from anywhere, always on, data-driven HR, algorithms allocating work, all of those things are permeating the full-time workforce. And so when I say rise of on-demand workers, that is not to say that everyone's going to become an Uber driver, not even close. That is not to say that the on-demand workforce, which currently represents about 30% of the labor force, that it's going to grow to that 50% that everyone thought 10 years ago. No, that is not going to happen either. But the rise of on-demand workers is the idea that every worker is going to face the challenges that the on-demand worker faces today. That total personal responsibility, data-driven HR, remote work, always-on work, all of those things are permeating the full-time workforce, and every worker needs to be aware of it and prepare for it. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the people in several generations at this point in time recognize that employment and work looks really different than it did for our parents, our grandparents, this whole idea of this lifetime employment contract that you talk about, which used to be the normal thing. You would graduate or finish your education or training. You'd work with the same company until it was time to retire, at which point you'd collect your pension. And 
all of the studies seem to indicate that most people are not just switching jobs, but switching careers. And that makes some people really nervous because it's so hard to plot and plan for your future. I mean, some people might say, well, you have more flexibility, not relying on one company to employ you and protect you. But it also raises so many concerns about how do I advance professionally? How do I save for retirement when I really have no idea what even the next couple of years of my career will look like? What advice do you have for workers facing these kinds of scenarios? Well, the first thing, Laura, I would start with, surprising nobody, is data, which is to say that the data would tell us that the average person stays in a job right now 4.2 years. Okay, that's interesting. The Bureau of Labor Statistics started gathering this data as far back as 1960. In 1960, at the height of the lifetime employment contract, do you know what the average length of time in a job was in 1960? I don't. If you had to I, guess. Oh, my gosh. I, uh, We're at the height of that lifetime employment contract. 30 or 40 years? I don't know. <laughs> that is the guess. That is the guess okay. that most people make. Okay. That is a standard <laughs> guess. You're right there in the, the solid middle of where everyone guesses. The answer is five years. Oh, interesting. And so we have this notion that work was so incredibly different. And in a lot of ways, of course, it was. But the idea that every worker at every company was marching towards their gold watch, there's just not a lot of data to support that. Did it exist for some workers at some companies? Of course it did. But for every worker in the U.S. economy, not by a long shot, which is to say that when people start thinking about, oh, well, what do we need to do that's different? It's important to understand, first and foremost, how different is it? Here's what I would definitively say from a data standpoint. It used to be that you could go and do whatever the educational environment is that you were going to do, high school, technical school, college, and you can monetize that skill set for about 30 years. So you may not be marching towards your gold watch with one company, but you had learned all the skills you were going to need to know for the most part. What the data would tell us today is that skills abatement, as opposed to occurring over 30 years as it did in the 1960s, is occurring in three to five years, depending on obviously the skill, its technical capabilities and in different industries and things like that. So what you're faced with is this idea of continuous education, the idea that we will always be needing to upgrade our skill set, to reskill, to upskill, in order to have skills that are monetizable over an entire career. So when I was researching this book, I asked, you know, I had the benefit of, of interviewing hundreds of people that are shaping the future of work. And I would always ask them basically that question, right? Like, what advice would you give to somebody just entering the labor force? And they all basically said the same thing, which was be prepared for constant change and be prepared to be a lifelong learner because you are going to need to constantly be reinventing yourself. That is the reality for the Uber driver today, and that'll be the reality for every worker in the very near future. And that makes a lot of sense just because of the fast pace of technology and how many new things are being invented or upgraded that you know we have to learn or become comfortable with. Are there other factors at play there that are leading this need to reskill and upskill so often? Well, technology is certainly the most powerful one. And one of the my favorite graphs in the book is kind of the technology adoption graph. The idea that it took 70 years to get the first 50 million users of a car 
you know, 40 years to get the first 50 million users of a, of a telephone, 20 years to get the first 50 million users of a personal computer, five years to get the first 50 million users of an iPhone, three years to get the first 50 million users of Facebook, and nine days to get the first 50 million users of Pokemon Go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that compression of a technological adoption is driving the need for constant refreshing of skills. So it, it is far and away the most powerful variable in that equation, but globalization is a variable in that equation. The capitalist system is a very powerful variable in that equation. So there's a lot of complexity. And one of the main themes of the book is that the world of work is really complex. <laughs> and anytime you hear somebody make a very simplistic prediction, like, oh, well, 50% of the labor force will be on demand in 10 years, you always go, uh, all right, well, what's your evidence? So it's important to remember that the world of work is very complex and it really belays any simple explanations. Yeah, there's lots of factors involved for sure. And I think it's so great that you continually go back to data in the book to say, you know, what are the numbers actually telling us? What predictions can we make realistically based on what data we have right now? And you mentioned a couple of minutes ago this idea of having to reskill and upskill. And so it's important for employees to develop. And you mentioned that one of the challenges that has faced employees is that many companies have started to view shareholder value as being more important than that development of employees. I just wonder, as an employee and as a worker, is the reason that maybe some of these companies put so much reliance on that outside of the obvious, is it because of their perception about how long the average worker stays in a job and maybe like you're potentially training someone to move to another career or to move to another company or another job and and that's maybe some of the hesitation there or is it something else? Well, as with everything that goes on in the world of work, it, it's complicated, but it does bring to mind my favorite little joke from the book, which is the CFO says to the CEO, you know, what if we spend all this money on training and development and all these people leave? Mm-hmm. And the CEO says, what if we don't and they stay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there has been an, an evolving relationship between companies and workers. And at the end of the day, it is based on supply and demand. There have always been more workers than there has been work. Now, that changes in its severity as new technologies come on stream. The technology shifts that balance of power even more to companies, and workers tend to get abused. That is a major theme in the history of work. And we know our stories of from school about the Pullman strike and the Triangle Factory fire. People may not remember the Ludlow Massacre or the Battle of Blair Mountain, but given their names, you can take a guess as to how <laughs> they turned out for workers. These are very, very difficult things. Now, look, the focus on shareholder capitalism is is a relatively new one in the economic model from kind of the 1970s forward. But about seven months ago, the CEOs of the largest companies in America said that they're done with that and they're going to focus more on stakeholder capitalism. So, all right, well, let's see how that plays out. And I think you've seen some good examples of it, of people standing by their workers through this crisis. But a lot of this has yet to be told. There are arguments to be made that a company exists for the benefit of its shareholders and it should be run for its shareholders. There are, I would say, much stronger arguments to be made that that is way too short-term a view of the world, that the communities that we exist in, our global community, of course, and 
all of the stakeholders in a firm, its suppliers, its employees, its customers, their families, these are very, very important things to look after. And companies that have done this well tend to perform better. So I think a lot of the story has yet to play out. There's a very important historic context and there's a very important data context. Mm -hmm. And that's a really good point about the current pandemic as well. It's hard to find stories of good things happening or good changes that are occurring, but it is a nice relief to hear some of that. We're going to pause to take a quick break and hear from some of our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll continue discussing the future of work. Looking for a true alternative to LexisNexis or Westlaw? You could save thousands this year if you switched to Case Text. Over 6,000 law firms from solos to 40% of the AM Law 100 use case text to help them find better results in less time and for less money. For $65 per month, you'll get access to 50 state and federal case law, statutes, and more with zero out-of-plan fees. Try the Smarter Legal Research platform. Lawyerist podcast listeners can go to casetext.com lawyerist to try case text for free for two weeks. Supercharge your team with the power of Text Expander. Your team can do more with the same resources. Less repetition, fewer errors, and greater consistency will have your team feeling like they've hopped off a bicycle and into a Ferrari. Keep the team consistent, accurate, and current so you can work faster and smarter with Text Expander's powerful shortcuts and abbreviations to streamline and speed up everything you type. Create powerful snippets to save you time so that all you type is a short abbreviation and Text Expander does the rest for you. Keep your whole team communicating efficiently and with consistent language. Text Expander is available on Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. And Lawyerist podcast listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more. Support for today's episode comes from Back Office Betty's, the only virtual receptionist service exclusively dedicated to small law firms that offers a plan with unlimited calls. Their highly specialized service boasts customized call handling, relentlessly friendly team members, and unmatched quality. The Betty's are ready to help you grow your firm even when you're out of the office. Visit backofficebetty's.com lawyerist to try them out for one week free. Use the promo code PODCAST to receive $150 off your first month. So one of the things that you mentioned that I have definitely seen to be true, having stepped from the role of full-time freelancer into more traditional worker, you know, you mentioned that the annual review is giving way to more frequent check-ins with teams. Is this something that law firms should consider too? That's a significant portion of our listenership. Do law firms lend themselves well to the project-based approach of being in communication and having more frequent check-ins with teams? So. You know, when I first started Work Market, we met with one of the largest law firms in the world, and they said, we need to innovate the way we do things, and we need to use more on-demand lawyers and this and that. And I remember presenting Work Market to them, and they were like, oh, my God, this is amazing, and this and that. I said, but you'd have to break work down into tasks. They're like, well, we can't do that. And I said, well, and you have to start working with people that aren't going to be in your office. They're like, no, no, we can't do that. Everyone needs to be in the office. And I looked at them. I was like, you know what, guys? Call me in 10 years. Okay. <laughs> I'm just, I'm not going to waste my time on this meeting anymore because you guys aren't ready to do what you need to do. Does task-based work lend itself to legal work? I think the answer to that question is, is yes. I think all kinds of work can be broken down into component tasks. It comes a question of how granular those tasks can be. 
but it certainly depends on types of legal work. There are certainly some types, and we've seen some, you know, one of the first investments I made prior to launching companies, I worked at a venture capital firm, was in a outsourced legal processing firm called Pangea 3, which was breaking down tasks, having them done by lawyers in India, and then bringing them back to the U.S. for reaggregation, review, and submission. And so things definitely can be broken down in tasks. When we talk about law firms, I think the more interesting conversation right now is around remote work and all the things that so many of your listeners had to do in March and April of this year, which were such fundamental changes to the way that they work. Well, and some of them are choosing to stay remote, right? But then there's also other law firms that are saying, you know, we've made this work for the time being, but really our business model is being in person. And one of the things we advocate for a lot is we shouldn't practice law the way that it has been practiced for 200 years, just because that's the way it's always been done um, with things in mind. So what do you think are some of the reasons that people might want to go back to the office after having had this experience where it's at least largely possible to stay remote? It is certainly possible. So, so many interesting points here. (laughs) There were two basic impediments to remote work. So shocking, nobody that's been listening, uh, I'm going to start with some data. There was 3% of the U.S. workforce that was working remote pre-crisis. There were two big impediments to its continued growth. One was a very antiquated mindset. And we all know the manager. Some of your listeners might be that manager that say, I appreciate all the studies say that remote workers are more productive, they're happier. They are more engaged. They leave less frequently. They have a lower attrition rate. But I just think productivity equals presence. I think magic happens when people are in the office. And that is just a very antiquated mindset that is not based on any data whatsoever. The data simply tells us, and we have study after study to show this, that remote workers are more productive. They're more engaged. They're happier. They cost the firm less. They cost the worker less. It is literally better for everybody. Now, these studies are predicated on not 100% of your workforce being remote, but a portion of it. The second thing that was holding back were policies, procedures, and systems. The companies just didn't have those in place for people to work remotely at scale. Clearly, IT staffs had to perform heroic efforts over March and April of this year to get people online and being effective from their homes. And obviously that assumes that people work in homes that do have high-speed internet and there's a host of digital divides there and, and all kinds of other social issues. But leaving all that aside, the difficulty of allowing someone outside your four walls to access your systems and all your files, that is not an insubstantial challenge. And there are a lot of cybersecurity risks associated with it. But for the most part, People got through those hurdles, and they started to set up the policies and procedures that enabled remote work. And that's why we see in the studies that we have kind of been a part of since the start of this pandemic, we see in a post-COVID world, God willing, soon, about 8% of the U.S. workforce will work remotely. So that's up from 3% to 8%. That is unprecedented, a change that quickly in the world of work. Labor statistics tend to move very, very slowly. But I was on the phone with the CHRO of one of the largest law firms in the world the other day. And she said, you know, I got to tell you, you got to look for silver linings. And one of the silver linings for her was that there were huge pools of talent. And the 
prototypical example here is kind of the the lawyer mom, the woman that took a step away to have a family and felt that she wanted to stay with her family, but still wanted to be engaged. And my friend's law firm wouldn't engage that person. They wouldn't engage that talent because that person had to come to the office five days a week. There was no flexible work arrangements. There was no flexibility in scheduling. That was it. And my friend who was the CHRO was able to push through her executive committee that going forward, while they do want most people to still be in the office, and I understand that and support that fully and, and the data would support it, they now are going to be able to engage that kind of MBA mom, for lack of a better term, that can kind of come in, work maybe one or two days a week in the office, can work different work hours, and they can just tap into those skill sets. Those are big talent pools to the legal world that just were not available and now can be. And I think we've seen that even within our own audience of lawyerist lab members. A lot of them have been able to work with the best talent in the field by being open to going remote, by being open to potentially working with freelancers and independent contractors when it makes more sense than employees. I'm curious about your perspective there are a lot of freelancers that are really nervous about all of the laws. You know, there's been increasing interest in regulating or legislating around independent contract work, and some of it seems to be with good motivation. You know, making sure that workers are classified properly. Um, but there's been some companies that you know it's been hard for freelancers to find work with them because they're nervous about things like what's coming out of California and and so forth. What is your perspective on some of these? laws, like where do we strike that balance between it being proper classification, but making sure that independent contractors still do have an option to work the right way? Oh my gosh, Laura, so many thoughts. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. So I will tell you, in the on-demand world, there is a battle between the idea that you can run an agile workforce and tap in to all kinds of talent. Again, 30% of the workforce works in an on-demand capacity. If you are not engaging that, you are leaving a huge amount of talent out as you try to close any skills gaps that you have. You're leaving a huge amount of players off the field. And so whether it's you want to have this flexible workforce, a flexible cost structure, you want to meet talent where they are, there are so many powerful reasons to engage more and more on-demand labor. That is one powerful factor that is driving the on-demand labor market forward. And the huge counterbalance to that is the regulatory environment. Where companies, and I can certainly tell you this as the person running the largest piece of software that helps companies engage on-demand workers, companies freak out when AB5 gets passed, when the Dynamex decision gets thrown down in California, when other states take actions. They freak out, and they say, oh, I don't know if we should be using on-demand labor. And you know, it's my job to go in and be like, everybody chill. <laughs> it's going to be okay. Nothing much has changed here. And whatever. And, and for the most part, most companies continue with their on-demand programs. That is to say, for the most part, which is not to say everybody. I do know companies that have said, you know what? I'm out. I'm going to convert all the 1099s I have to W-2s. I don't want to engage any more freelancers. I, I just, I'm afraid. Okay. Because to your point, I, I don't think that any legislators are sitting there saying anything other than we want to make sure workers are protected. But I can promise you, having met with thousands of CHROs over the years, researching the book, building work market, there is no executive team, CHRO, CEO, CFO, COOs, 
there's no sea level suite of people that are sitting there saying, "Hey, how can we really screw these <laughs> right. people? Right. How can we screw these workers? Let's let's get them all to work and pay them very very little and have them be on demand so we don't pay them benefits and just really screw them." That is not a conversation that's ever happened. Like at least that I've been a part of. I'm sure there are some companies, much smaller companies, quite frankly, but no large company is sitting there saying that. They're, they're just not. They are saying, hey, we want to get the best talent we can. We want to pay probably a little bit above market so that we make sure we're getting the best talent. And obviously, we need to be mindful of costs because we're a business, but they're not trying to screw their workers. And so what you see is a bunch of people that want to run their businesses effectively and efficiently, but they face this patchwork of complex, confusing, and contradictory laws all around the United States. Because what works for the state workers' comp board in Wisconsin might be a big red flag no-no to the unemployment office in Louisiana, which might be kind of okay to the Department of Labor in Texas. And it is very, very challenging for executives to run a business in that way. So I appreciate the intense behind AB5 in California. I also appreciate all of the conversations going on about putting it on a ballot. There's, I believe it's called Prop 22 in California coming, uh, where they're going to put it to the people. And the people are going to say, we don't want AB5. Okay. I appreciate everything going on with DoorDash and Postmates and Uber and Lyft, which is really what the law was designed to go after. Because in those circumstances, and obviously the data is all over the map here because it's very difficult to gather, but in some circumstances, if you're an Uber driver, you're making effectively six bucks an hour after all your costs. And you know what? That's not okay. That's too little. And we need to protect a worker in that regard. But a person working at a law firm as a freelancer, doing a marketing project, doing IT work, doing a host of other things, that is not the person that AB5 needs to protect, is designed to protect. That person doesn't need anyone's protection. That person is reasonably well paid, and that person is going to get paid by the law firm. Law firm's not going to screw them and not pay their bills. There's so much good intent on a regulatory standpoint, but I don't know that it's taken into account the data. And if I were to wave a magic wand, I would say regulators have a unified labor law across the United States, have that labor law be incredibly quantitative so that companies could simply use a quick calculator to know should this person be an employee or an independent contractor, and if the person is making over, pick a number, $100,000 a year, you know what? They don't need anyone's protection. Yeah. They're just fine. That's so smart because coming from a world of so many creative and technical freelancers where so much of that regulatory conversation has centered, like you mentioned, upon the good intentions for people like Uber and Lyft drivers, where it does seem to fall the most in that gray area or that blurred line of, are you really an employee? But so many of us freelancers are like, Yes, we're independent contractors like Uber drivers because we receive a 1099 at the end of the year, but the way that our work schedule is and the way that we do business and how we're paid and what we're paid in a lot of cases is really, really different. And so I think it's been frustrating for 
a lot of us on the creative and technical side to have it be so focused on this group of people without realizing the unintended consequences of, okay, what does this mean for all of your freelance journalists and your freelance graphic designers who pretty well understand the the risks and advantages of working as a freelancer? That was going to be my next question to you too, which you already kind of jumped into, but how do you decide when should you work with an employee versus when does it make more sense to go with an independent contractor? So in the book, we talk a lot about what I call the labor equation, which is a complex series of formulas as to when you should do what. In its simplest context, if somebody is going to be working for an extended period of time and is using a lot of institutional knowledge is building up a lot of intellectual property, is customer-facing, has a lot of touch points to the rest of your organization, there is a long ramp-up time, then that person almost in all cases should be an employee. If the work is incredibly discreet, if it is very, very contained, meaning not a lot of touch points to the rest of the org, not a lot of customer-issue-facing environments, uh, if it involves very little ramp up time, if it maybe needs though a subject matter expert, then that tends to be a freelancer. But there are a hundred nuances within that that are so different industry by industry, company by company, work function by work function. And the regulatory environment is a very big variable in that labor equation. Yeah. I think that that breaks it down really clearly. So many people struggle and kind of go first to the IRS test of, okay, who's providing the equipment that this person needs to do their job? And that's definitely helpful. But there's also those other aspects that you brought up of making that determination of what is the right work environment or structure for this person to come in? Where am I going to get the best person to do the job in the conditions that we have? And I liked that you talked about some of those other, you know, non-IRS test factors that can help you make that initial decision. I want to wrap up by talking about one of the things I really liked about your book and is definitely a reason that people should go pick it up aside from all of the other great content in there. It's so well laid out, very intelligent arguments, everything backed up by data. But can you tell us a little bit more about the future of work essay competition? Because I think this is fascinating. I love it. <laughs> well, I will tell you, writing a book is really hard and it really sucks. <laughs> As an author, I agree. <laughs> it takes so long. You know, the, my book's been out for three months now. And it was funny, I actually was remembering because it was about one year ago today that I called up my publisher and I had already missed two deadlines. And I said, all right, all right, I'm going to send you the manuscript. And the publisher said, oh my God, are you happy with it? that's so great. I'm like, happy with it? No, no, no. I'm just done with it. Like, I do not want to look at this thing again. But after a lot of editing and whatever, I am never very happy with it and everybody should go buy it. It's very well written actually, but uh, be that as it may. One of the best things about this book for me was the idea that I got to ask 20 of the men and women that are actually shaping the future of work to write their thoughts as to what they thought the world of work will look like in 2040. And, you know, I limited them to a certain number of words. And so each of them are, are short essays. Some people wrote about the independent workforce. Some people wrote about the regulatory environment. Some people paint a very utopian future. Some people paint a very dystopian future. And so it's, it's amazing because these are the CEOs, heads of labor unions, heads of staffing firms, CHROs that are actually shaping the future of work and to get their views was amazing. 
And so chapter 10, where they're all included, is by far my favorite chapter because of how brilliant they all are and also because I didn't have to write it. So that was awesome. And then to make it a little bit more interesting, I did attach the XPRIZE-like Future of Work prize, which is one of the writers in that chapter will receive a $10 million Future of Work prize as to which of them is the most accurate. And so that was something that I was very happy to fund and uh, we very happy to award. Well, the fact that you're giving away this award and we're getting to hear from all of these incredible thought leaders and CEOs is great in and of itself. But I just think it was so brilliant that <laughs> you knew that it was a great way to finish up the book, not have something that you have to write on your own. That in and of itself is a genius approach. So <laughs> I love it. As an author, like it it really is such a big thing to write a book. And by the time you're you're done with it, you are really done with it. And you do not want to think about yeah. it anymore. So I appreciate that a lot. Well, I know I've learned a lot reading the book and chatting with you. Where can people go to learn a little bit more about you and your work? Well, look, anybody that wants to talk about the future of work, by all means, we reach out on LinkedIn is always the easiest place to connect. Uh, I'm an active LinkedIn uh, user. The book can be found on Amazon and wherever fine books are sold, because I think bookstores are actually starting to reopen now. So that is really, really exciting for everybody for a hundred reasons. But I will tell you, this is my second book and walking into Barnes & Noble or another bookstore and actually seeing your book on the shelf is a unique thrill. So I'm excited to get to do that again. And then, I, you know, you can always follow me on Twitter at Jeffrey Wald, especially because my time at ADP, which bought work market is going to be winding down. I will be able to now start tweeting inappropriate things again. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. It really was a pleasure. Such a pleasure, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. The Lawyer's Podcast is produced by Laura Briggs and edited by Christopher Ng. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Well, here are your first two steps. If you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free right now at lawyers.com book. Next, if you're looking for help beyond the book, then let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyers.com slash community to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.